Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Welcome again. Here we are. I'm Cindy House. I am the boss, and I am here with everyone's BFF, Lizzie No. Wait, who gave you a copy of my high school yearbook? I was voted everybody's friend. Did you sign everyone's yearbook, Lila's? I did. In fact, I said Lilas to a friend just yesterday, and she felt a little weirded out, but also, I think, really loved, like a sister, if you will. (laughs) Cindy, can I say something to you that I don't know if I've even said to you this month? Yeah. Happy Pride, dude. It's Pride Month. Happy gay-ass Pride. This is the gayest time of year. I also feel like June is um, Black History Month Part 2. Don't you feel mm-hmm. June has like a very black vibe to it? Like there's Juneteenth. It's Black Music Appreciation Month is also this month. Exactly. So really this month is all about me, myself, and I. It's for the girlies. It's for the gays. It's for the culture. I love June. Happy Pride. I must apologize for cutting you off earlier. You did? When you were talking about, well, you were like, it's Juneteenth. And I was like, also, it's Black Music Appreciation Month. (laughs) That's fine. This is a podcast. This is a collabo. I'm a white person. I need to be heard. (laughs) I've been accused of not sharing enough of the white perspective, Um, not being sympathetic enough, being sort of a reverse racist. And I intend to stoke the flames of those allegations this month especially i can't believe this is happening (laughs) if you'd like to keep in touch with basic folk you can sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com click on the red sign up button i didn't send a a newsletter out in may because i i didn't i forgot so we'll send out we'll send one out in june maybe today i can't wait to hear it and by hear it i mean read it it will be the gayest and blackest newsletter ever oh i'm thrilled check your inbox great You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram. We are on Twitter, but not active. I quit that shit. Twitter is, 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 uh, well, you know, Twitter is, Twitter is an app that you can download on your phone. That's all I'll say about Twitter. Hmm. All right. (laughs) If you want to follow Lizzie on Twitter, she is Lizzie No is Dead. Lizzie is on TikTok at Imagine... My my handle Ask me on TikTok. About... Okay, go ahead. You do Could it. Could you stop interrupting me, white lady? Yep. Um, <laughs> my TikTok is Ask Me About Imagine Dragons. I'm two percent Native American. Really? I don't know. Okay. Everyone from New England whose families have been there for six hundred years has got like a certain percent but you shouldn't talk about it you really shouldn't unless the community claims you i don't want to hear about it cindy Mm. but my cheekbones (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyways yuck 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 so before we get into our guest today caitlin canty who i'm very happy to have on the pod i wanted to talk about dotty the cat it's a big week for dotty the cat Um, Ever since we got our puppy Puddles, her life has been pretty hard. Uh, And recently she has been like kind of a grease ball, you know? What do you mean by that? Literally grease ball? She's not as fluffy and like it seems like she's not taking care of her coat as much. Whoa. So I had to do some searching and I found like a cat groomer who's going to give her a dry bath 
This week. What's a dry bath? Uh, so the only thing I can think of is that it's like dry shampoo, but I hope not because if there's an aerosol can, my cat is going to be like in the next state. Um, I am not. I've heard about dry shampoo, but I don't really understand what it is. Is it like baby powder? Yeah, it's like aerosol baby powder in a can. Oh, interesting. Why would a person use that? Why you would can also shake? There's also shake on. Uh, I uh, it cleans. It's like a cleaner. It takes the. I think it takes the. It works some of the grease out. Okay, fascinating. I honestly haven't used it since before the pandemic. Because now you have so much hair washing time. Well, now I just like let it let it get greasy. Mm. Maybe Dottie learned from you, and that's why she's she's doing this. Oh, I learned it from you, Dad. The other thing is, is like I, I was talking to the cat groomer, and she was like, "Okay, uh, you're all set for your appointment, and I just need you to bring her rabies vaccine." And I was like, "Oh no!" So she needs to get a new rabies vaccine. Yeah. So on Wednesday she's getting a rabies vaccine, <laughs> and on Thursday she's getting a dry cat bath. Poor Dottie. You should give her like a whole salmon on Thursday. That's a really good idea. Anyways, what's new with you, Lizzie? Um, I'm doing very well. I have been busy as a little bee. I was at a friend's wedding this weekend. It was wonderful. Went to North Carolina, danced a lot. The wedding band did a live version of um, Yeah, the Usher song. Can you imagine how lit it was? I don't think you can imagine. Um, But I've just picked up my puppy Berlin from the dog sitter. And it really feels like we've been separated by war and famine and years even though it was just mm. a weekend. Um, feeling very grateful to have him back. Feeling very glad that it's June. June 24th, I will be performing at the Spirit Weavers Gathering in Oregon. It's an all-women festival. I'm so excited about that. Moon time. Moon time. And then I will be performing at SF Jazz's Summer Festival in San Francisco. So cool. um, and the Hiawatha Traditional Music Festival in Michigan. There are tickets available for all of those things, I think. Um, LizzieNo.com. Come see me on tour. I'm so excited. It's going to be so fun. Now talk about your guest. Okay, I'm so pumped about this guest. I've been a fan of hers for so long, and I like really had to narrow down all of my feelings about her work. Um, Hard. What stands out the most to me is that urgency and patience are the two poles of New England songwriter Caitlin Canty's magnetism. Her music invites you into quiet moments of reflection with unhurried confidence. When I first heard her song Get Up in 2015, I felt like I was receiving a very important and magical message. Um, Canty's subsequent releases have further revealed her uncanny talents for grooving at the right tempo, describing the memorable image, leaning into elegant arrangements, and letting delicate moods hang in the air. Caitlin's new album, Quiet Flame, was recorded live with a string band and no drums. (gasps) No drums. Live tracking has... Total folk record. Total folk record. Like, folk as folk. Um... Live tracking has become her signature over the years, and this new record shows the authentic and powerful moments that can be created only in that setting. Um, Produced by Chris Eldridge of the Punch Brothers and featuring collaborators like Sarah Jaros, Brittany Haas, and Paul Coart, Quiet Flame is not only a showcase of um, Canty's unmistakable voice and songwriting, but it's also a celebration of her impressive musical community. Caitlin knows a thing or two about teamwork after many years of team sports. She was a soccer player and a heptathlete through her college years. What? Whoa. Um, And I have a hunch that her athlete brain and her musician brain share a particular wisdom. Pacing, collaboration, focus, and graceful movement characterize her unique body of work. It was a true delight to talk about writing, friendship, family, touring, humility, and self-belief with this gem of a musician. We're going to take a listen to a song from Caitlin's new album. This is The Odds of Getting Even. And then we'll get to our conversation with Lizzie No and Caitlin Canty on Basic Folk. You can hold it without showing, but the cracks keep on growing. And I hear they don't let no one bring a grudge where I'm going. I don't 
Caitlin Canty, thank you so much for being my guest on Basic Folk today. I'm guest host Lizzie No, um, and I've been a fan of your music for a long time, since I heard Get Up years ago. Um, but I, where I want to start is another part of your life, which is sports. I can't like claim credit for this idea, but there's like theories that people love watching athletes because they have a connection to the body mind that like a lot of people are envious of and like a sense of like truly being in the present moment, like unmediated by analysis. And I feel the same about live music. Like when you see musicians perform, it's like, it's not just that they're making music. It's that you can see that they're experiencing the moment in a particular way. Um, and I know that you grew up as an athlete, so I would love to hear about your experiences with sports and how being an athlete um, has affected how you show up on stage. Yeah, I love that idea. Well, I'm actually wearing a Boston Celtics shirt right now as I'm talking to you. Oh my gosh, what a heartbreaking <laughs> week we had. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I like almost cried at the bar and then I had to like collect myself. I was like, it's just a game. It's just a game. My little brother's named Kevin Michael, which oh, you yeah. know, Kevin McHale. I don't think it's mm -hmm. much of a coincidence. So, um, <laughs> but I grew up playing soccer um, and, and basketball and I did mm -hmm. track and field and heptathlon. And so that I always heptathlon. felt. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I did that in college even a little bit. What are the events in the heptathlon for our listeners? I mean, I know for sure, but just as a reminder, <laughs> as a refresher. Right. Well, you have two throwing events, the javelin, which is so fun, the shot put, which I was horrible at. Um, you've got two jumping events, the uh, long jump and the high jump. Those are, I, I had springs in my legs when I was younger. So those were fun. Wow. Uh, we got the hurdles. And then there's the 200 and the, oh God, was it the 400? No must have been the 800. It was just awful. Yeah. The 800 is a really tricky event because it's like that, it's that space where you should sort of still be sprinting, but yeah. not quite. <laughs> it's like a little too long. Yeah. I, I loved, I loved the throwing and the jumping events and I liked the hurdles. So, um, but it was, I, I grew up mostly just loving the team sports and, and soccer mm -hmm. was really the thing that I just loved growing up. I grew up in a small town. I think the whole class played soccer because we couldn't have fielded a team if we didn't have the whole yeah. crew out there. I love what you had to say about the the mind-body connection. And I remember that feeling of being in the zone. I remember that feeling like when you go up, jump up to block someone's shot and it feels like time slows down. Mm -hmm. Or um, when you're in like one of those high pressure, a championship game feeling, you know, and it's just, yeah. you have a different sense of space and time. I think there's um, something cool that happens when, and I, I didn't ever think of it really that way. Um, I remember playing soccer and I had sprained both ankles at one time and I didn't, they didn't hurt during the games. I would just play, play, play. And then I would be a, a kind of a mess the rest of the time. Right. And I remember um, hearing about Johnny Cash saying he never f felt pain while he was playing when it was on stage. And I um, wrote a song with Maya DeVitri who mm -hmm. um, she and I wrote a song about Sharon Jones and wow. we had both just had a, connection to her I had played on a stage where she was the last act uh there and at the merch table you know a week later everyone was just still buzzing about that show right and I went home to Nashville and, and Maya and I had a date at our kitchen table to see if we felt like fishing for a song and on our kitchen table was a Rolling Stone article open to an interview with Sharon Jones and she had stage four cancer at that time she was touring like crazy and yeah. she was just so inspiring letting go of um old grudges calling up old boyfriends and laughing off the past. You know, she just said she felt no pain while she was playing on stage. And, and her shows were just like as energetic as you can get. So I just, mm -hmm. I think you're right. You're onto something with that um, mind-body connection where you just get into a different dimension almost when you're yeah. um, transported into, you know, being part of something beyond yourself. And maybe you can turn off that uh, hyper-analytical piece. I was recently just thinking about the songwriting process and I'm going to be at Rocky Mountain Folks Fest playing there this year and doing the song school. Mm -hmm. And I um, read that Stephen King book on writing. It's so good. It's so good. And it applies to songwriters entirely, but his biggest piece of advice that stuck with me was about um, writing with the door closed and editing with the door open. And I Ooh. think there's something that happens in that, that kind of, throwing away you get into that same zone if you're writing 
with no one else in mind, without any, not letting that little, whatever sits on your shoulder and tells you you're not good enough or that's been said before, or this yeah. is, where is this going? <laughs> I think that rhyme doesn't actually work. Or, you know, is this that... really relatable to other people type of thing? Yeah. yeah. You cannot have that in mind when you're writing. It's like, it's the mind killer. Right. So no one's allowed in that room except for you and the page really. And, um, that thing gets lost as well. But then when you're editing or when you're trying to think about how that comes across, how it's delivered, how it connects, that's when the doors open. You see how it feels. Do you speed it up? Do you slow it down? Do you get rid of the third verse? You know, it's like there needs to be a different self that walks into the room at that moment. Yeah, I love it though. I think maybe it's there is a real mind body zone that you can get into, and it's easier in live music. It relates to sports that way. Maybe sometimes I can get into it when I'm songwriting and I'm really in that closed door way, but mm-hmm. mostly it's playing on a team. So when you're playing with a band. You know, you feel, yeah, in the zone. Now, have you always been like a team player when it comes to your music? I read that your f- first song that you wrote was like a co-write with a friend at age oh 13. My gosh, Can yeah. you talk about like that early collaboration? <laughs> oh, well, she, I was, uh, you know, we both played sports and both were on in the band and, and sang in the choir, but we loved singing together. She was my neighbor and my best friend growing up and we were just singing and we didn't know how to play guitars or anything, but we were holding them backwards and made a music video, Aww. but we wrote a song in order to make this uh, VHS music video. You have a, you have a music video? video? <laughs> yeah, it is somewhere. Um, uh, I don't even know if it's if it's still in existence, but yeah. We need to get that digitized as a basic <laughs> folk archival project. <laughs> in the beginning. How did you learn to sing? Oh, I don't know. My mom says I was always a bit of a songbird. And mm-hmm. uh, we had whatever they had on uh, their turntable. There was a lot of Simon and Garfunkel and mm-hmm. Beatles. And she had some We Sing and Play tapes that she said I used to play all the time. But I just loved singing. I, I, don't, I don't remember not singing. I remember a long road trip to Maine. And I was singing the same song over and over. And it was a, a Beach Boys song. And I was told to to change the station, you know, change the channel. <laughs> and I just stuck my head out the window to keep singing. And they, they could still hear me. Um, but, oh, my God. Yeah, it's very cute. <laughs> singing was always um, something I just, I, I don't think about too much. Just My dad whistles all the time, you know, it's mm-hmm. that same thing. But I think songs is where I got really got the bug um, in college and I, I never had much of a, you know, Mariah Carey or um, Whitney Houston style voice. Mm-hmm. And that's really what was, everyone was singing. I think when I was growing up and I, I, I've always been folkier. And so, yeah, I just started to dig into my own voice. I think when I got a surprise for Christmas, a guitar and went off to college and fell into a songwriting elective that, it's a brilliant course and it changed the direction of my life for sure. So at the time that you, you're taking this class, had the idea of a career in music occurred to you? Oh, no. And it, it still hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, my folks are school teachers. So I just thought everyone was a teacher and we paint houses in the summer. And so I just figured those are the two lines of work available to anyone, you know, <laughs> and um, the, I went to school and I, I loved science. I was a biology major. Um, I just didn't, I didn't have like a charted path. I just knew I had to, I had to make a buck too. It wasn't about to, you know, just mooch and cruise around on my own. And I, I when I left college, I just didn't have the songs I loved yet. You know, it wasn't enough to stand on and sing every night, but I was, I was obsessed with it. And I fell into a job, um, first employee for the Artist Den, mm-hmm. live from the Artist Den. And so that was all these live music events, one night only. We were bringing in the audience to a cool location, the band with photo and video and sound. And I learned so much about production and I learned so much about the way different artists, you know, present themselves, what mm-hmm. they're like backstage. Um, but I always, I still felt like a little, a little pup, like just had my songs that I would keep in my little bedroom and sing back up sometimes in the city. Um, and I just, yeah, I didn't think of 
um, live music as a career to aim at or anything. I just, I tried to be very practical. I worked for five years in office jobs and then I couldn't do it anymore. I just really wanted to try singing. And I just loved, I loved being on stage and I loved playing songs. And so had to give it a shot. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, I know you went to Williams College. My sister is an alum. Oh, neat. It's such a, a place with a lot of creative people, but also a lot of like very professional and motivated folks. And like, I can imagine that going to a school like that gave you a sense that like you had to have like a career, capital C, wear a suit, have a plan. Um, do you think that contributed to like your feeling that you weren't sure if there was like a career for you in music? I think that's a, that's a, decent assessment there's I think there's definitely a, like a northeast pressure of accomplishment and achievement yeah. <laughs> and you know what have you done lately and what are you doing with your time and how people are very um there's a workaholic gene here you know yeah. um there's a workaholic piece of the of the culture and it can be great I see a lot of porches in New England I don't see people sitting on them ever and that right. was one of my things that attracted me to Nashville like I was like, people are using their porches mm -hmm. <laughs> just visiting there. yeah exactly just visiting and actually playing some music on them um and so I definitely have that that streak that type a streak but I didn't I don't know I didn't feel my family has never pressured me to uh achieve or anything my mom was so Famously, I remember when I told her I'm quitting my job mm -hmm. and I'm going to play some bars. Yes. <laughs> it's my guitar. And I'm going to try that for a while without any other backup plan. And she's like, I've been waiting to hear you say that for five years now. Oh, you know, that's, that's beautiful. such support. And they not only is that supportive, but she's been doing my merch shipping for a really long time. Stop it. That's beautiful. Like, that's a fulfillment <laughs> comes straight from home. I like, all the, anytime I need posters or something, she's been so helpful with that. And she retired from teaching around the time that I started to tour so much. I couldn't mm -hmm. take it on myself anymore. Yeah. My, my family's been ridiculously supportive in that way. I guess I just, it's just, I didn't know any other touring musicians. It was just like a strange idea. Like being a movie star would be almost more of a career path. Like you, cause you've seen more <laughs> movie stars. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, not that I know movie stars, but you know what I mean? Growing up, you're just like, Oh, it seems like some people do that, but you don't really hear that much about folk music. Um, because you're also like a small business owner. Yeah. It's like such an odd way to make a living. Yeah. Um, I loved a recent post that you had on Instagram um, you were celebrating an important anniversary that you call the beginning. Yeah. Which was on May 15th of what year? You you quit your day job? Oh, gosh. I think it was 2009. Yeah, it must have been nine. So can you take us back to that day? And what were some of your fears as you jumped off the singer-songwriter diving board? And like, if you think back to like your first year or two, what surprised you the most in that first year of like, I am dedicating myself full time to this craft? So I was at that time, I was no longer working in live music. I was working for a company called Green Order, which was mm -hmm. very much a suit job. Like you were saying, you know, um, lots of it, it felt like a real New York City job. <laughs> and I was it was long hours with a lot of really um creative and interesting and dedicated people working on sustainability, trying to get big companies to be greener essentially. And it was really great job. And I loved my boss and I loved the team of people I worked with, but I lived in New York city for over a decade, but I didn't really love it. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. happened to be there for a long time. And um, so it was almost essential that I try to do this. It's funny that post, I almost didn't do it. I was just in a rush, a little kid. And I, I wanted to honor that day. It's bigger than my birthday in a way, you know, yeah. to me. Um, but I felt like it was kind of self-congratulatory and, you know, uh, patting myself on the back. And, and I got so much actually really sweet feedback about uh, when I posted that. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I did it. It gave me a nice little boost. Um, anyway, it was when I actually was way back in that, in that moment, I think I felt, um, now or never about it. I think I'd been mm -hmm. towing the line between two um, identities. I still remember flying to a meeting in North Carolina. It was like for Polo, Ralph Lauren. We mm -hmm. were doing something with our distribution warehouses and stuff. And then flying back that night 
changing out of a suit into whatever jeans or whatever I was playing on Rockwood Music Hall stage. Damn. And getting up and pouring my heart out on my guitar, you know? I think I've done that exact quick change between like the business casual, like yeah. being an assistant and then, you know, going up at Rockwood and you feel like you like change in the Superman phone booth. Exactly. Like, what are clothing items that make you feel like I am performer Caitlin now? <laughs> well, I guess the thing is I just feel like myself now before mm. the, the identity weirdness was putting on a suit and getting on the subway or walking you know I would try to walk <laughs> to work all the time 45 minutes or something and um yeah that, that felt comfortable with like at cowboy boots as I seem to wear those all the time and they just felt like the most practical shoe right. for me and I'm just um I, I'm still wearing pretty much the same stuff I've got a maybe look into that but um don't fix what ain't broke <laughs> I just I like to be comfortable and um I like to not have to think about it I like to wear dark clothes because you can't tell how dirty they are yep <laughs> <laughs> but I've always felt yeah I think the cowboy boots I, sh I guess this one pair I bought for 18 bucks in Idaho at this thrift store called the gold mine or um the first pair that and they're men's, so oh, they're a little oversized. They're extra comfortable because you got cowboy uh, boots can be way too narrow if you don't get they can. a men's size. Yeah. I want to, before we get to the new record, talk about how you've honed your sound over the years because that's actually what jumped out to me the most about your first two albums. Like, you're a wonderful lyricist and a wonderful singer. And I think what captures me the most is the sense of like this fully formed sound that you've had since your first album reckless skyline how do you infuse urgency into your music well let's see i think there's sort of two parts of that question the beginning you know kind of being um solo singer songwriter and that live thing started there i was either singing backup or i was playing solo and live so bringing people into the fold was really um an exciting moment for me. And at that beginning, there was Rockwood Music Hall, which is a great community um, center, really, for a lot of singer-songwriters in Manhattan. But then Kristen Andreessen and Laura Cortese started a camp called Miles of Music. Oh, yeah. And I had, being a consultant in sustainability, you know, I had my whiteboard and my charts. And I had, before I made that leap out of, you know, full-time work, I, um, in the office, I like just made a list of the things I actually had to do. I had to make a record, a real record, not just, I had been putting out EPs and I had to do something that felt more real. One of the other things was collaborate was one of my weaknesses. I just, I'd only really ever played with another guitar player, you know? Wow. And so when Kristen grabbed me at one of her banjo gyms, Kristen the Night Away showcase things where she'd have friends come up and do two songs and it was such a sweet little um, series she did. She's such a community backbone she was starting in that camp and it seemed like I couldn't not do it because I just made that list to myself. I'm going to take this leap. Mm -hmm. This is how, what I got to do. <laughs> so I got that first day. I remember sitting down on the dock and I started just strumming my songs on um, their campus in um, Lake Winnipesaukee on a little Island there. And somebody came down and started playing banjo with me. And then somebody came up with a fiddle and someone came up with another guitar. We ended up having like this huge jam, not just my songs, like it, mm -hmm. but it started as people just, sat down and opened their cases and it was mind-blowing and it was really the first time I'd ever played with a banjo player the first time I'd ever played with a fiddle player wow and that was super cool I think when I was um backup singing what drew my my sound and my songs together I started playing with Peter Bradley Adams I am such a big fan of Peter Bradley Adams oh, oh my goodness too. me and my sister like for years and years she's gonna be excited to hear this interview hi Claire oh that's <laughs> so cool oh no he's he's like one of my dearest friends and um just you know there's some people along the way who are the ones who if they hadn't been there I wouldn't be having this conversation with you you know oh yeah um I had played one show I'd heard him play a bunch and his guitar player Hans Holson who played lap steel and electric guitar with him um I thought was just so fantastic and he never wasn't a noodler it was yeah. just <laughs> beautiful tones kind of stepped back and let Peter do his thing real simple and Hans was the one who introduced me to Peter and said you know Caitlin's got a great voice you should have her sing backup sometime if you need a singer 
And Peter checked out my stuff and said, you're a great songwriter. Let's write a song. We sat down and wrote a ton. I'd never yeah. co-written with anybody. And he, I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't have any kind of qualms about it. Some people who have established themselves as writers kind of, I don't know, hem and haw about, oh, I don't know if I can co-write. That's just watering down my vision. Ugh. It's hanging with a friend and getting something beyond yourself. Getting something done. And stealing all the tools from their toolkit too and yeah. seeing how they solve the puzzle of songwriting. But so anyway, Peter would probably be part of that sound. Um, the lap steel that Hans played and um, and I made a trio out of Hans Holzen and his buddy Kyle Kegeris who played the upright bass. Mm -hmm. And that was just like a real fun, felt like a full enough sound for my songs, but also um, lightweight enough that we could play shows and um the tiny stage at Rockwood Music Hall too shaped my sound because drums would fill the basically the entire room the sound man it's so tiny the sound man would sit above the door with his legs hanging down up in that little <laughs> attic thing yeah. and you're like hello <laughs> and is a tip jar gig and uh you, you know you just get your 45 minutes or whatever and so that room made that sound evolve um so everything up till then and golden hour was you know, my vision, it was all not quite what I wanted it to sound like yet, but it was very simple and open, which is, is surely what I go for, but it didn't have like the depth or the darkness or the power that I wanted. And so I opened one show um, for Jeffrey Focal in, um, at the Lizard Lounge mm -hmm. and the booker, Billy, why am I like, I don't want to say Billy Conway, which is not Billy Beard there amazing drummer for Session Americana and a lot of other folks. He um, put me on that bill. He thought our music would go together. Well, when I heard Lodi, I was like, it feels like every good song I've heard and also like nothing I've ever heard. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The way the harmonies really are like kind of sandpapery is like incredible. He has an amazing sound. And it was so much fun to sing with him. I mean, gosh, yeah. Jeff Focal, Mark Arelli, Mm -hmm. they're too like those the way they sing yes it leaves a lot of it's a lot of fun to sing backing vocals with I bet they kind of cartwheel a bit more so you can kind of hang on and um anyway so but he gave me um horse latitudes mm -hmm. and that was his newest record at the time and I was like this is what I was going for yes. and I asked him about how he made the record and everything and at that time he had already signed up to produce a record for Hayward Williams mm-hmm and he's, well, I'm producing for this kid. You want to, let's, let's make a record. I was like, uh, yes. And so we made Reckless Skyline. This is 2013 and we recorded it. I had in 2011 started writing with Peter, I think, or 10. And, um, and, the, and that was for the Down Like Silver collaboration. Yeah, Down Like Silver stuff. And yeah, we, we just named it that. It was just, we just continue it to yeah. write songs when we feel like it and put them out as singles and carry on with our lives. I wanted to name drop it so that if any of our listeners haven't listened to that duo, yeah. they can dig in. There's so many good songs that you guys have created Thank together. You. It's a really cool ongoing partnership Yeah, as a fan to like follow along. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, we both lived in New York and we both lived in Nashville and then we've now recently both moved to mountains. <laughs> so we're always on a similar parallel track, but, um, that I think reckless skyline for me blew open the doors of what I was trying to do for so long. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I learned so much from everybody in that band. I I've been playing a couple of shows with Matt Lorenz who tours now as the suitcase junket. We had played, uh, his band rusty bell at the time. Mm -hmm. We'd done a couple of co-bills and, I remember when Jeff and I were talking about the band, you know, I said, I, I want to, I want Matt too. Well, he's like a sound wizard. His, his, he his, is. even his solo shows are like <gasps> whole sonic universes. He's, he's so fun to, to watch. And for anyone who doesn't know, he's like, he is a one man band, but it's not gimmicky. It is like, it's like Led Zeppelin. It's hypnotic. <laughs> he's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, he's, there's nothing missing. You're not aching for something else, maybe a harmony every once in a while, but he can even, I bet he could just sing harmony to himself, you know, live. <laughs> he's a I bet, magician. Yeah, he's probably like one of those Lala Hathaway people that can self, that can sing a harmony as one person. And he's amazing. Um, he also is a multi-instrumentalist and a really great live backing vocalist. Like mm -hmm. he just can stick to you like Velcro. Um, and then, yeah, I remember who should play a oh, pedal steel has to be on this record. Well, 
Eric Haywood would be amazing. I'm like, Eric Haywood, I don't know if we could get him. And so that was the first time I met Eric. I think I dropped a huge flashlight. He was coming into the Airbnb pretty late. And I just like launched a flashlight almost on his head before the session started. And we've toured a bunch together as a duo too. He's such a sweet guy and gorgeous player. I feel like that's one of the best things about being a musician is when you've like been listening to someone as a fan, especially like an instrumentalist. And then, and you're like, you just idolize them for years. Oh, I'd heard him on Ray LaMontagne records. Yes. And I'd heard him on Tiffany Merritt records. He has such a singular sound as a pedal steel player. So. Um, that session, though, I think what you were asking about how you create your sound or whatever mm-hmm. comes across on your records, the way Jeff and I, the the, the um, thing I learned from him was about making live records in the studio. So that is, I've tried it different ways. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that works for me. It's the only way that feels good. If you're trying to capture something that feels good, you can't like fake it and paste it together later unless you, you get lucky. But really, it doesn't come off with as much heart. It doesn't sound as good. It doesn't hold up. And it's not fun. It can be so miserable. I don't like to do it that way. I, I'll sing on someone else's record as an overdub, but I don't want to make my records as overdubs. If I'm leading a band and then I overdub my vocal later or something, it's like I'm chasing my own tail. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. feel normal. Even if you try to perfect it, it just doesn't come off in a way that feels more real. So we did 18 songs in four days in this studio. It was such a fun moment I still remember it was not just fun moment it was just like earth shattering it just kind of sounded the way I was what I was looking for 18 songs in four days is wild to me do you feel like I mean I know that tracking live was important was tracking quickly important as well I think not doing too many takes was important I I, you know I got overexcited and had too many songs for the um, session and was like so ready to go and that was my first live band session ever you know other than playing on stage with uh four piece mm-hmm. we had there was a lot of moving parts and so I was just delivering my songs and just listening and and um that was just my first taste of how it felt to feel good making good music and you know everybody would listen back if you had something that you wanted to change you could punch it if you had to fix a bass note or something. Or if it didn't feel right, we could do it a day or two later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think you just go fishing for the songs. If they don't work, then you don't put them on. I, I have a, one song I almost put on Reckless Skyline that only made it onto my latest record. So 2013 to 2023. Oh my gosh, what song is that? Wild Heart. I was going to ask you about that song. That's one of my favorites on the new album. Oh, cool. Wild Heart, written with Annie Lynch. Oh my gosh. Can you tell us about like the writing process for that song? And like, yeah. h- what instinct in you said like, okay, now in 2023, it's time to release it? Oh, no instinct. I tried it all the time. It just didn't <laughs> feel right. So um, at that time, we had too many songs and Annie... Lynch at Annie and the Beekeepers. Oh, nice. She, this is the first only song I've ever written like this where it became a co-write kind of accidentally. We were at that island that I was talking mm-hmm. about um, in Lake Winnipesaukee. There's a songwriting retreat now that I've been going to. And she was sitting in, in one of the big rooms. There's mostly little cabins that dot the edge of the lake that are just little no electricity cabins and all the songwriters disperse. And she was in one of the um, community rooms and I wandered by, she's like, hey, listen to this. What do you think about this song I'm writing? And she sang what is basically the first verse of Wild Heart. Wow. And then she sang what she had as a chorus, which is something really interesting. It had a lot of chord changes and it was like beautiful. But I, I was like, wow, after that first verse, I would just do something that's kind of like, ooh, ooh Wild Heart. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she repeated Wild Heart. And she's like, let's write this song. Yes. <laughs> and so we sat down and wrote the second verse right there. Mm-hmm. And then we sang it for everybody at night and they made us sing it over and over again when the, when the songwriters get together at night after dinner. And so we're like, we've got a hit. And then we just kind of sat on it. I wrote, uh, because I wanted to record it, I wrote a bridge uh, later. And she was like, yeah, let's, let's do that. And I think she was going to record it. So I, I just didn't you know get it together for Reckless Skyline. I tried it on my next one, Motel, which I had actually two different sessions for, one that I never released. Wait, you re- you recorded the whole record twice? I recorded a record called that was going to be Motel with a lot of the same songs and 
it was one of those things where the intention was a live band in in studio. I ended up playing with some really wonderful session musicians, um, Spooner Oldham included, and a great producer. And it just didn't have the heart in it. I, I don't know what happened, but the producer also had his own studio. And he said, well, if we don't catch it, you can overdub that vocal later. He just really wanted to get the band while we had the band. Yep. And then singing to that band later was like, well, this is way too slow, or this feels robotic, or this one feels right. like, why are they not following me? Oh, that's because it's a pre-recorded track. They can't follow me anymore. You know, we tried really hard to get things that felt good. And we got around on some of them and, you know, redid a couple of things. But one song, Scattershot, I loved so much and it could not live with what we had. And yeah. I said, um, he was he went on tour and I said, well, I got to record this. And I just started dating Noam at the time. And he'd heard my songs a million times. <laughs> and he goes, why don't we just go into a studio here and get our friends? And so we went to Josh Grange. Um, he's a oh yeah, Cheryl Crow's guitar player and pedal steel player for long, many years. He played a lot of the steel and baritone guitar on my new record. Awesome. What an amazing mind. Josh has yes. like, Josh is so creative and like can fit into so many different musical shapes. Oh, That's I such love a cool, that you've worked oh. with him. Well, his, have you seen his backyard studio? No. When I worked with, I worked with him at the uh, bomb shelter in Nashville. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Check out his, his spot. It's, it's like the perfect backyard studio, meaning it feels like homey and comfortable and also completely professional and has your ISO booth that you need for yes, locals that you're playing amazing. with drums. And yeah. So he's a great guy to work with. And he just said, yeah, come on over. I got the day free. And um, Paul Cowart came to play bass. Who's also in Punch Brothers. Oh, no he's a fantastic player. Yes. And that was my first time recording with Paul. And then Russ Paul played pedal steel with Jerry Rowe, who, and Russ and Jerry play in a lot of sessions in Nashville together. So they're so they had kind of like in a band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Stuart Duncan dropped by for one day, who also is in a band with Gnome. Flex. And it was a really cool thing where, same thing on Reckless Skyline, everybody had played together before, but never all together in the same mm. room. And so there's those really brother, there were brother relationships and also, um, stranger relationships and so it gives this really beautiful chemistry of hominess but also wanting to perform for someone you look up to (laughs) I think that was a good vibe what's interesting like what I take away from that is that like you have a pretty particular theory about recording which is that it's an event um and like it sounds like maybe you know, you started off doing like musical events and production. That's true. And there are a lot of people who like focus very much on the final product. And, you know, I do a lot of things with like separate tracks and Mm -hmm. isolating things. But your approach is about like creating an event that you have a record of and like really showing who was in the room and and what was going on at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And there's like a faith there, like, especially at times when you're like, oh, that moment didn't quite turn out how I wanted like yeah. you have to like have this faith that you're gonna get it at some point and like it's worth going back to and maybe starting from scratch <laughs> I mean it, that was a hard lesson to learn and I've never I guess I'd heard of musicians really throwing away their their whole I don't know if you want to call it life savings but redoing records again spending tens of thousands of dollars yes. to do something you know it just felt like that's irresponsible. Like if you do that, you don't get to make the next one. You have to make sure that you're, you know, you've mm-hmm. got to always catch up with the next. Like no better, do better. Like once you do that, you have to <sighs> figure out a way to get around that in the next how, one. How do you? I hear that. We're all, we're all just, you know, everyone's hanging on in some form in this business. Yeah. I don't care how it looks. Everyone's just hanging on. Just doing and their best. <laughs> so you can't necessarily, I, I guess my practical side, you can't just throw that stuff away, but I, it didn't feel like a time and a place I wanted to share. It didn't feel like uh, a friend of mine listened to it. He goes, these are good. It just didn't sound like you. It sounds like it could kind of be anybody. And I felt that same way. Yeah. So that day with Noam and um, in Josh's studio, we went in to get one song. And in the meantime, I had written a couple more and mm-hmm. we ended up getting four songs that day, just because we tried a couple that I'd already done and thought about and tried. And we did, they just came off so easy because of the band, also because of all the listening and all the playing of that recorded track already. And then everyone said, let's just do two more days. So we just, 
why not? Came back, yeah. To me, that's like the feeling of you're like really trying to piece together something in the writing process. And then you like lie down to sleep and you wake up the next morning. But and yeah. There it is. And it's not because you were like working and working and working. It's because you right. let it simmer a little bit. But there's still that bedrock of hard work. Yeah. That you then you don't realize you're standing on, you know, solidly. It's I think that's. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it is the hard work, but it's not like the squeezing it and yes. bringing it into place. You know, it's letting it be. I think the live in studio thing, obviously you've got to have players who can do that as well. And that's, I don't keep a regular touring band because of a lot of the records I've made have been with folks who are parts of other projects. Yes, And that's one of the things I'm drawn to. I've heard their voice on a different project. I've heard the, how they have their own personality through their instrument. And that's something that would sound great with this, you know, body of songs I've got. And I can imagine the family of the band when you're starting to think of who's in that room mm -hmm. and the, you know, the connections that can be made musically. And you think, all right, this could be a great project. But the downside is like for this last it's year. It's hard to pull that together. <laughs> when do you get, when do you get all those people in a room again or every night, you know? great projects I want to talk about this new record Quiet Flame yeah. um, there's so many ways into like the spirit of this beautiful album I think where I want to start is mm -hmm. Heart of My Country um, because if I'm correct you released that as a single mm -hmm. and then you were partway through you know the album was in process the pandemic hit and you became a parent yeah. so how did you look at that song when you first released it, where did it come from in your heart? And how has your point of view on that particular song changed since you released it? And like, how are you looking at it now that so much time has elapsed and so many life changes have happened for you? Yeah. So when we, Critter, uh, Chris Eldridge mm -hmm. and I decided to make my record together, um, he's also in Punch Brothers and like just such a dear friend, you know, a brother of mine, it feels like yeah. as well. And I love, and he, and Kristen Andreessen mm -hmm. are, have been partners forever, as far as I know. And uh, ever since I knew both of them, they've been a couple. And it just, I felt like he understood songs in a way that someone who is a partner, as a songwriter, understands songs yep. and he writes songs, but he also writes tunes. He's part of a band. He gets, I love his ears and we share similar tastes. So it felt like, all right, this is a good partner for a producer. And right. Um, he's produced some other stuff too for instrumentalists, but this was kind of a different uh, mode for him. And it, we had did some song meetings. We got the band set, got the dates. Let's tour into the record. We even played a show in Chattanooga with uh, Paul Cohort and Brittany Haas on the on the fiddle. Oh, cool! And it felt so good. I like wanted to make the record the next day. <laughs> and I remember telling him, "I've never been more prepared for a record in my life." And oh he's my like, gosh. "Don't say that. <laughs> You're going to curse us." That's very bad luck. That's yeah. really bad luck to say. I know. I usually would be knocking on wood, but I just—I <laughs> probably was. I was pregnant. Um, I was trying to fit the session into that timeline. And um, I had a couple opening dates. Like I remember, I think one of my last shows for Josh Ritter, and it was in March. And I came back on March 2nd. I got home at 10 p.m. And around midnight, 1 a.m., uh, a tornado landed in my front yard. In East Nashville, and we were so lucky um, that our property didn't really sustain any damage in our house. But our neighbors were not so lucky. That whole block, our whole neighborhood, was just completely immediately. Everybody's focus is on, you know, what do you do? How do you help? And then a few days later, it was the focus was on hide in your house. You know, the pandemic is here. It was. Crazy. And then we were supposed to make the record, you know, two days after that lockdown started. So the, the studio literally locked its doors and I think did for good. And Critter and I just said, you know what, let's do this next month. <laughs> and that didn't happen. We'll just hunker down for a few weeks and yeah, see how this thing fine. goes. Oh my God. Right. We were, we're optimists. I remember those days too. Yes. And I think in that time though, um, Where's the Heart of My Country was it felt it was a song I had written and then performed a few times on stage. And it was the one that, you know, like mid set, you'd get that feeling of some people would stand up, you know, it just felt like I was really connecting with that song and the political landscape kept changing every day. There was something new to be infuriated about or cry about. It just, it was like, 
I felt like that message was timely and important. And I also being an optimist felt like it wasn't going to be timely or important much longer. So I got to get that thing out. And so I recorded that while I was, I think, eight months pregnant. I was, I was very much, you know, the guitar was on one side of my belly and I was singing and playing at home. Um, Dave Cinco came over with a beautiful microphone and helped my um, one, a little room become a studio room to record. And, mm-hmm. and Noam engineered it. And, and we had um, Brittany and Paul went to a different uh, studio later on once things opened up a bit more but we like live streamed it to each other and so it was a connected thing but not like being together quiet flame though all the changes in everybody's lives that happened in the time having a baby just changed really how I'm how my time works <laughs> energy level of, of sleep and um, we were just in a cocoon for a really long long time so what felt right and natural and exciting was playing with living, breathing humans in a room and no interference from electricity, no electric instruments that were the amps in a different room, no things that we wouldn't be doing because we'd been playing so much on our porches and in our living rooms together. Now it's like, let's play music like that. That feels like the exciting thing to do, not to like let the electric guitar do the like, Steering and burning, but let the fiddle do that. And like it mm-hmm. just, I think my life had become more steeped in um, that, you know, bluegrass or strings world just based on my neighbors and friends. Yeah. And I wasn't really plugging in my own electric guitar to play while I have a little kid napping. <laughs> so, because it's a quiet flame. And yeah. And it's interesting because it really, I mean, circling back to our earlier conversation, it's totally unmediated. It's fully just like, who is present in that room? Mm-hmm. That's what There's you're no hearing hiding. on the record. Yeah. There's, that's one thing about that delivery. There's, It's very intimate. It's very much mm-hmm. like we're inviting you into a space that is different. Um, it's it's for a certain type of listener, too. I don't think like I, I don't necessarily know if all of it's very radio friendly mm-hmm. or. Sure. I mean, it doesn't. I, I sat down at a like a industry thing where they're presenting a couple of different songs you'd listen on the big studio speakers and mine is in a different space than a lot of contemporary music it's not um like the bass that paul is playing is like a real bass it's not just uh, the you know keyboard dum, dum, dum. yeah it's like it feels different i have a, a reaction to it physically in my body i can feel the bass versus you know I think you feel the other one in your butt. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you feel, feel it like at your collarbone. When Paul plays, you hear like right in your chest, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a different um, a reaction. I, I think um, it didn't, we didn't do a string band just because, you know, Critter and, and the producer and all the people come from that line of, mm-hmm. of um, music. It was like, this just feels like what these songs want. Mm-hmm. And, and not having a drummer was a real decision after we thought about our, lineup for a while. Sarah DeRose wasn't an original part of that early band. We were going to have a drummer. There were going to be electric instruments that no one would be playing. You know, the pandemic feeling changed those songs to me. Mm. And so Sarah was our drummer, you know, yeah. (laughs) And um, what a lucky break that was. She's really, she is a master of low end and she plays percussively. That's her, it's a cool texture all over this, this record. Yeah. Oh gosh. She was such, such a brilliant partner on this singing and playing and a whole her whole presence you know really was like the missing link I think for me before um you've said in a few interviews that it's really important for you to collaborate with egoless players in the studio so can you talk about some of the ways that ego or lack thereof shows up in the recording process and also I'm curious like how good are your spidey senses on like, this person's going to be a good collaborator. This person works without ego. Like when you're starting to work with someone or considering working with someone, what are some of the telltale signs that you look for that like this person is the type of like, like-minded egoless player I'm looking for? Yeah, I guess I, I think the the way a live thing has to go down is that that chemistry has to feel good among maybe five people at least, you know, let's say. And sometimes um, I think there's been some folks where it can be a little more controlling. Once you get to understand that they want to control everything within their world and then it mm-hmm. bleeds into other worlds, that can shut down a lot of creativity. I think there's um, 
So I got to read uh, a few comments from the band for an interview that they had done um, oh. as the records slowly started coming out. And Britt said something about uh, that I want people to play their instrument like they are themselves. And I'm not just asking them to come in and play a few notes that I want or shaping what their thing is. I, I really, it's it's true. I don't, I wouldn't imagine trying to make Britney do something. Like we talked about every song before we played it. So I would kind of give like the the cliff notes of what this song means, stuff that you would, the way you would never introduce a song on stage. Like this song is about, and it's about this person and right. it's about this uh, situation. Oh my gosh. That gives me hives. I feel like there's so many, like when you're doing press for an album, like there are some outlets that they, you can tell they want you to just do that. They, they just want oh. you to like give like the sort of Too much uh, information. tiger beat cliff notes so, so that stays in the studio but like it really did help us get on the same page of yeah, like this part is the happy part this is the sad part i'm talking yes. like dumb it down you know mm-hmm. let's let's make the contrast between these two verses striking yeah you know but saying it like that and having that game plan was really um i guess it was helpful enough that paul when i didn't do it was like caitlin tell us a story about this one yeah. <laughs> and tell us your your song story about this one so we it felt like we were um trying to solve the same puzzle together. I guess I just, you know, when you, you find people that you want to be friends with, it's the same thing. It's not like I'm looking for egoless people. I'm just struck by how egoless people can be and supportive, mm. especially folks like Sarah, for instance, who is a front man of her, of a similar thing of a singer songwriter yeah. thing. And she was just like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll, I'll sing on that. Oh sure. Let me try changing my instrument to fit in with this uh, no one would show up for one song and um he was playing a plectrum guitar that was like a resonator mm-hmm. it's four stringed instrument and sarah had started playing mandolin she tried her octave mandolin and then she grabbed a um i think our critter handed her a, a baritone ukulele off the wall of the studio wow, and cool. she figured that out to play what felt like a supportive part because a featured player had come in mm-hmm. or if Britt was taking a solo what she would do underneath that I mean, the way that Paul and, and Brittany play together, they're like a two-headed monster. You know, they have a similar um, mind meld. And so they're almost one instrument together cool. with their strings. And I just, I love watching that and then, um, and hearing that on songs of mine. It's just so cool. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I have to sing now. <laughs> yeah, you're creating, you're creating musical events. It's such a special thing to witness which of these songs are you most excited to perform live once the record's out oh gosh well we did a a record release because so many singles have come out and it was the only time to grab this this band at Mm -hmm. the station in and playing odds of getting even was so much fun because that's paul's playing his bass in a bowed way so he's got the driving groove like the dugga dugga and that (laughs) Just gets it felt so good, and the station in is such a um, a funny joint in Nashville. It's like a holdout downtown where all these huge high rises have come up, as you know, and like it's yeah. just there's a lot of you know bros and goobers who drop by with the um, with their Nashville attitude and you know visiting cowboy boots, their shiny cowboy boots on. <laughs> bros and goobers. I feel like that's the name for my next backing band. <laughs> I think it's just, there's like that tiny bit, but they're like, they're expecting to come see real true blue, bluegrass. So there's like a touristy extra boost. And then it's kind of a hometown thing, I think for yeah. string players, but that there's a strange energy that night. It felt really good. And Jamie Johnson came out. who was one of the guys I wrote. Yeah. Um, I wrote one song with him and he's just, I love, love, love his voice. Oh my God. And, um, he said something, he's, he's like, I said, they just get so quiet after the songs and then they lose their mind or they, during the songs, they were quiet and they would lose their mind <laughs> after it's what you want. That's quiet flame to a T. They're creating yeah. space. He said, they're creating space for the song. And then they're, they're it's just like a really fiery energy. So yeah. Um, odds of getting even wild heart singing that with Sarah DeRose was really fun to sing and have the, the two strings, you know, growling through that song is, is one, it's a particular band to pull that song off. That's, I just, gosh, come by the highway home, you know, playing that felt, felt right. There's just so many that feel good. It just feels so good to play with everybody, you know, after a a long string of years where I've been playing less live music for a variety of reasons. Many of us have, but 
I had the the two pronged attack of <laughs> baby and pandemic yeah. um, slowing me down from the the stage, but just can't get enough of it. I love it so much. Um, everybody, go out and buy Quiet Flame. It's <laughs> such a fun and intense and beautiful and lyrical record. I have one more question before we go to a lightning round. Yeah. How would you define Americana music in 2023? And like, who are a couple of artists that are in that space right now that you think are exciting? Like, who are you listening to? Gosh, Americana feels just like roots music. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think it's, um, I love that the Americana Music Association has tried to gather up the the outcasts of country or, the, yeah. you know, the, the things that don't exactly fit in one little box. You know, it's not bluegrass or folk or country, but it's a blend. Um, I think the folks who've fallen into that category who have been listening to and continue to just astound me, Maya DeVitri is one of them. Yes. I think um, everything she writes is interesting to me. Like there's her delivery and the way she can be a solo folky singer songwriter, but also if you've seen her lead a band, she just is like an incredible front woman. Yeah. But she's prolific and I feel like she's a strong artist in the way that she um, makes space and time for her art, both writing and touring. She just actually opened a bunch of shows for Mighty Poplar, which is Noam's new band with oh, Andy Marlin cool. and Critter. So those are like three Come of the guys on. on star-studded. <laughs> this record, yeah. But they're, they're the same kind of, that music feels, it feels so good. It's not, um, it's not overthought, but it's also mm-hmm. harder than it looks. Does that make sense? Well, it's like, it's in the body there. And you always, I feel like when you talk about artists that you love, it's like, there's a visceral feeling mm-hmm. you can describe in the body where you feel that. I feel that way about Maya Dvitri. Like yeah. there's something so direct and physical about her music. Yeah. Very emotional. And I'm not mm-hmm. a big crier, but she can, she's, um, Sarah Watkins also, I somehow yeah. she gets the tears going every time I hear them, um, play. Um, I just was reading Lucinda Williams' new book and I've been, you know, she's one of my like in the blood favorite artists, you know, the kind that you heard throughout your life at those moments and that you could like sing 10 of her songs without trying, you know, from memory right away. And, um, so I want to hear her new record, but I feel like she is kind of a cornerstone of whatever that Americana sound or Emmy Lou Harris or um, Gillian Welch. Those are the artists that are just have such long and brilliant records and, and careers of playing live music and um, continue to be just as bright as they were um, at the beginning. You know, it's just these like I mean, better, you know, just their songs and their singing and everything just, I don't know, continues to captivate me. I'm probably going to think of so many things as soon as we hang up. You'll think of more and we can put them in the show notes. Sure. Are you down to do a lightning round? Sure. Fire away. Don't think too hard. Okay. Quick answers. Okay. Sweet or salty? Salty. Early morning or late night? Early morning, unfortunately. (laughs) Jeans or sweatpants? Jeans. Uh, Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. What was the last book you read and loved? Oh, it was the Lucinda Williams one. Uh, Don't tell anybody my secrets. Who is your celebrity crush? At what age? <laughs> uh, age 15. Russell Crowe. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, what is one song you wish you had written? Uh, why is this slowing me down? All I can think of is only listen to Williams, don't tell anybody the secrets I told you. It's just on the tip of my tongue. But no, I think um, anything on Maya's last record. <laughs> what is your most useful non-musical skill? House painting. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think clutter lately, like leaving the clutter yeah. around for me to pick up. <laughs> Caitlin, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. I love your new album. Everybody go buy thank it. Thank you so much, Lizzie. And we can't hate, wait to hear what's next. Uh, I love talking to you. Thanks for having me. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by the one, the only Sarah Wardrop. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. 
or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You are bright and brilliant. Don't let anyone ever take away your shine. Never. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.